One, two. Good morning. Well, we're into our second uh, session on the, the creed. And so I'd like you all to stand and we're going to recite the creed together. Let's begin then. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. Some people, some churches say that we have no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. And in doing so, they are impoverished. In actual fact, we all have creeds in many ways, and even those churches that say they don't. When you look behind the scenes somewhere, there is some type of creed that you have to affirm and go along with in order to be part of that church. And scripture has its creeds as well, both in the Old Testament. We have the, the Old Testament in the Shema. I, I believe in, in God, the Lord as one Lord, etc. We have them in the New Testament as well. Um, but creeds are encapsulated statements, aren't they, of what we know and believe regarding God. And um, I don't know what your view of God is this morning, what your view of Jesus Christ is this morning, because we are particularly looking at the second part of this creed. But I read something Michael Bird said the other day, and he said, if you have an impoverished view of God, then you will have a low view of church to match it. You see, when you get a big view of God, you want to gather with his people to magnify him. You want to gather with his people to lift him up and to worship him and to celebrate him. And I was just reading in Psalm 126 this morning, and, and it just struck me in a new way. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. When we get that kind of view of God, when we get that kind of view of what he's done for us, yes, we dream. We become dreamers in a completely new way. We dream in kingdom ways. And, and uh, uh, we are filled, uh, we are, our mouths are filled with laughter and with shouts of joy. And I pray that you are this morning. In the creed, we not only affirm our faith, what we believe, those category things that we believe about God, but we also affirm our trust in him as well. It's more than things that we simply assent to, much like you might assent to carrots and computers, for example, but you may never eat a carrot or you may never eat a computer, never use a computer. <laughs> Try eating a computer if you can. Okay, uh, one way to get the bites into you, isn't it? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, but there we go. Yeah, so... <laughs> 
We can have that knowledge of God that we may not trust in him. And it may be that that's you this morning. You have a a knowledge of God, a a kind of working framework of God, but you don't actually trust him. So when we say these creeds, we're not simply reciting things in a way that, oh yeah, I believe there's a God out somewhere. We're actually saying, saying there is a God I believe and I trust in and who I am committed to. And so, you know, that's good when we do that on Sunday mornings. We gather and we get up and together we say this is what we believe. And I don't know whether you notice there, it's in the singular, it's in the personal, rather. So it's not the we, it's what I believe. You see, sometimes it's good to say we believe. But you know you can hide behind somebody else's belief. And it's important that you and I as individuals believe the truth about God, his son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and the work of redemption, and all his purposes in the earth, right through to when we reach uh, the end and God takes everything through it into a a new thing altogether. Do you have that kind of personal testimony? I can remember many years ago, in in the first place I ever worked at, and uh, that my boss knew I went to church, or as we called it, chapel. We we didn't say church because uh, we were chapel people. And, and uh, my boss, I had the privilege of working with him, and he's probably one of the reasons why I'm wired like I am today, because God brings people into our lives to do that, even on non-Christian people. And he made me explore truth. And I can remember him saying to me one day, he'd say, he knew I went to chapel at the weekends. He said, Richard, so what did you do at the weekend? And I'd talk about what we'd done at chapel and that kind of thing. And he'd say, Richard, what, 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 do, you, what, what, do, you, what do you believe? And I'd say, well, they believe this, and they believe that, and they believe the other. And he'd, he'd stop me in my tracks and say, but Richard, what do you believe? You know? And that's the question for every one of us. What do you believe? And I can remember when I got filled with the Spirit, and you may not believe it, but I, by nature, I am the most timid of individuals. You know, as one of those guys, when I went to school, I sat in the class and I didn't say a word. And, and that's the kind of guy I am by nature. But when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, that changed all that. And I couldn't wait for him to ask me, what do you believe, Richard? And then I would tell him with conviction what I believe, how God had come in Jesus and how God had saved me, how God had forgiven me, and so on. Do you have a personal testimony? That's what I want to ask you this morning. Do you have a personal testimony of Jesus Christ. This, the first statement that Barney went over last week, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, distinguishes Christianity from other religions like Hinduism and Buddhism. It asserts belief in one God, one almighty God who is noble and personal and who created and sustains the heavens and the earth. In contrast to the the weird and, and not so wonderful gods of the the surrounding nations and their creation myths. So here we are in this this second statement this morning, which says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the dead, And on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And everybody should say amen Amen and hallelujah. Because those lines are absolutely loaded lines. They are rammed. And uh, there's a lot that we could say about this statement, this second statement. 
And much we've already covered in Hebrews, which I'm not going to go over all that ground and would encourage you to go and and listen to those messages in Hebrews that particularly deal with it. But it is an important statement. The second statement, though, is it is vitally important because many have a distorted view of God. Many people get hung up on perceived ideas and, and, and distortions of God, usually based on some misunderstandings of the Old Testament. If we want to know God, we need to know Jesus. So the question is, do you know him this morning? You might go to parts of the Bible, as some people do out in the world, and they, they look at some of the Old Testament stories and they can't get their head around that. Don't start there. Look at Jesus. Start there. If we want to know God, we need to know Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews said that in the past, God had spoken through various prophets, through secondary agencies, but now he speaks directly through his perfect and beautiful son who is the express image, the exact representation of his person, the full radiance of his glory. Want to get to know God? Get to know Jesus Christ. And I I trust that, and maybe in a word of encouragement, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, and maybe, you know, things have gone dry. Can I encourage you again to go and read the Gospels? Go and read the story of Jesus. Go and get lost in who Jesus is and and let him come to you afresh and speak to your own soul in a new way. Let's be honest, we do go through those times. We do go through those times when the enemy gets the better of us. And the best thing we can do is turn away from that and get into the word and let Jesus speak to us afresh. Let us see him all over again. This second statement is also, I don't know whether you realize, is is absolutely scandalous. It's it's an outrageous statement. It's so scandalous, really, it's surprising that Christianity ever got off the ground. The idea that the creator God, the everlasting God, should come and dwell in human flesh did not make any sense. For many people at that time, they, they thought of flesh as as evil, as something to be, to be got rid of, to get away from. They could never imagine that somehow this God who's holy and pure and so on should come and, and take on life in, in a human body, in tainted flesh. And yet it says he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. We remember that every Christmas, but I wonder whether we really ever fully grasp it. It took me a long time to, to really see it. I knew the story. I'd grown up with the story. I knew it in so many different ways, but it's only in the latter part of my years I've seen the depth and the beauty and the power of that story that he took on real flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh for you and I. And it's what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion that believes in a creator God. It also sets it apart from the cults that say he was a man who attained divinity or a creator spirit son with a a small s as opposed to the son of God with a capital S. God, the everlasting God, is not only powerful and personal, but he has also come in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He has taken on human flesh. Wow. I mean, it's staggering. It's outrageous that a holy God should come and live here and dwell in our flesh. 
Someone has said that the deity of Christ is the hinge on which Christianity turns, that God could dwell in human form as deity. John says anyone who denies that God has come in the flesh knows neither the Father or the Son. In other words, those who deny that aspect of Jesus, and they want to look at Jesus and say, he was, yes, he lived and he died, etc. He was a good teacher, he was a good moral person, To say that is not enough. To know the true God through Jesus Christ, we must believe that he is God who has come in the flesh and taken on real human flesh here and lived here and been tempted here and died here and rose again. Otherwise, we know neither the Father or the Son. But in doing so, in doing so, in coming into this second statement, we enter into the idea that God is, is more than a solitary being a singular being, that God himself is not only revealed himself as father, but as son. And in the next statement in the creed, which Graham will touch on next week, we'll deal with next week, we we discover that he is also Holy Spirit. So there we have the, the statement in the Old Testament, the Shema, which says the Lord our God is one Lord. And we have hints throughout the Old Testament that there may be more than that to that than meets the eye. And I haven't got time to go into that here this morning. That's a a bigger, bigger, bigger subject. But we step into the New Testament and we get this mighty revelation that God is a trinity of being. That he is Father, he is Son, he is Holy Spirit. It was the coming of Jesus that fills out what was already there in the Old Testament. That there is, as somebody has put it, a we in God. There is a we in God. This would become more and more apparent in the life and teaching of Jesus when he spoke of the Father and of the Spirit. Now, many have wrong conceptions when they think of the Trinity, uh, seeing it either as different manifestations of God. For example, some people might say, God was the Father in the Old Testament, he is the Son in the New Testament, and he is the Spirit in the church era. In other words, he comes in different manifestations, what's known as modalism. So really, he's just one God who puts on a different guise and comes in a different way. Or or there are three gods, which is known as tritheism. You get so caught up in it that you separate them all out from one another and you end up with three gods. Or the other uh, heresy is to see a hierarchy of being with the Son being lesser than the Father and the Spirit being lesser than the Father and the Son. And that's why we have the later creeds, because if you go and look at the later creeds, the Nicene Creed and then the Athanasian Creed, you see that they're having to deal with that. Now, some people will say that Jesus never said he was God. And no, he didn't in our language, but I'll tell you what he did in Jewish language. That's what we need to understand. Because when you read the Gospels over and over again, What he was saying in a language that they understood was, I am God. That is why they wanted to crucify him. That is why they had such an issue with him. They certainly understood what he was saying. He also taught that there was a distinction between him and the Father and the Spirit. And before he left, Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As John Meyer says, is certainly one could hardly imagine a more forceful proclamation of Christ's divinity. 
and incidentally of the Spirit's distinct personality than this listing together on a level of equality of Father, Son, and Spirit. One does not baptize in the name of a divine person, a holy creature, and an impersonal force. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Just one more thing when we think about the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity speaks about the fullness of love, joy, and life in the Godhead. Some people have some strange ideas about God. And if you think of God as a, a solitary being, you can imagine him a bit, being, a bit like an old grandfather up in heaven getting totally bored over the years and needing to create something in order to make himself happy. That would be a complete a complete, yeah, distortion of what the Bible says about God. Theologians have a word for it. A word they use is perichoresis. And it's a lovely, beautiful word. It refers to the, the mutual indwelling, the ongoing union and the self-giving of each of the persons of the Trinity to the others so that none of them is isolated and, or detached from the others. It refers to a, a dance where each centers on the others, uh, pouring out love, delight, and adoration unto the, into them. As Tim Keller puts, he says, each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. Wow. Do you think of God like that? God was, has been happy from all eternity and will be happy to all eternity. The Godhead then is a life that's infinitely alive, full, rich, beautiful, not empty, sad, lonely, or boring. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, wow. I mean, I grew up on some of this, and I didn't get my... I didn't understand it. I knew that God was Trinity, but I kind of left it all to that realm of mystery, you know? And many Christians do leave it all to the realm of mystery. Maybe one day, when I get... How am I getting ahead around it? And we won't fully get ahead around it, but we can know something of it. And the doctrine of the Trinity, to my mind, is the most beautiful doctrine in the whole of the Bible because of what it says about God. And that's what the creed touches on. I believe in God the Father Almighty, but I also believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. The creed roots us too in time and place. The reference there to Pontius Pilate places the, the coming of Jesus in a particular time and place, a verifiable time and place in human history. Pilate was a, a Roman aristocrat uh, appointed by the Roman emperor Tiberius and as a prefect of Judea uh, around the region of AD 26 to 36. So here we have this creed about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Here we have this particular portion about Jesus placed within a time and place in human history. It's not faction or, or, or fantasy, not fiction or fantasy. Jesus Christ was a real historical person. And there is more evidence for Jesus than there is for Julius Caesar. Loads, loads more, absolutely. To C.S. Lewis, who grew up in, with a, a nominal Christianity and then became an atheist, it was this historical evidence for him that was a massive eye-opener. As he began to ponder first the knowledge of God, and then the reality of Jesus Christ. 
So it says here in the Creed, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And I want you to notice here that the Holy Spirit was the leading partner throughout his conception, birth, and life. Something we don't very often think of. But he was the leading partner in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He was there in his conception. He was there leading him into the wilderness. He was there anointing him for the the purposes of God. Born of the Virgin Mary. Unfortunately, the virgin birth has come under attack in recent years. But without it, Jesus would just be another fallen man. And we would have no gospel. The miraculous birth of Jesus marks the beginning of the end of evil, sin, pain, and death. Yes. We haven't got time to go to it, but Revelation 12, 1 to 11, deals with that in very, very concise form. Go away and read it this afternoon. Revelation 12, verses 1 to 11. The second statement is also scandalous because of the death that he died. It says he was crucified. He died, was buried, he descended to the dead, and the third day he rose again. They are, again, staggering words. And I I, I wish we could be more staggered by them and pray that the Holy Spirit might make us more staggered by these words. The the cross, you see, was a, a curse to the Jew. It was foolishness to Gentiles. It was the most horrendous, undignified, humiliating, agonizing form of death that could be invented by man. No one, whether Jew or Greek, would naturally believe that this was good or in any way beneficial. This is a display of the the wisdom of God. As 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, the message of the cross is foolishness to the perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. And so, through his cross work, Jesus demonstrates the love of God for a fallen and broken humanity. He atones for all of our sin. He propitiates God's wrath. He cleanses us from that which has stained us. He sets us free from that which has bound us, from Satan, sin, and death, so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And he establishes a new and better covenant. And for that, I want to go, yes. Yes. I do. I pray that it might thrill us in that kind of way. To the world, they look on and say, how could something that had such ignominy, such humility to it, possibly bring forth anything that was good? But in the wisdom of God, it does. It brings us salvation. In his resurrection, he was publicly identified as God's son with power. Romans 1 verse 4. He was and is and always will be Christus Victor. Hallelujah. Conquering Satan's sin, death and hell. He was the crucified king and it was through his death that the kingdom was established in power to save for all time. That's why you and I are here this morning. Wow. 
And listen to this too. It would also redefine the nature of the kingdom. You see, they had an image of the kingdom as a king, a mighty king in Israel. They had this image of a, a mighty king like David on a charger with his armies going forth to victory, asserting their power over others. But it would redefine the nature of the kingdom as power in weakness, as strength in suffering and victory in sacrifice. You can go and read Mark's gospel to get some more on that. But it's important that we hear that in the light of who God calls us to be as his people. As those who confess the creed, who confess Jesus Christ. He has ascended into heaven where he's sat at the right hand of the Father in the place of honour and authority. The God-man. The old Pentecostals used to love to say, there's a man in the glory. (laughs) I love it. I love it. You know, there's a man in the glory. There is a human man in the glory sat at the right hand of the Father. He is God the Son. He is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that is so, so powerful. They used to love singing far above all. Far above all. God has exalted him far above all. In the place of honor and authority, from where one day he will come to judge the living and the dead. They thought they had got rid of him. Many today think that was the end of him. Many think they will have nothing to do with him. But every man, woman, boy, and girl on the face of the planet will one day have something to do with him. Whether they confess him or not. That's why we need to be sharing the gospel. Because there's multitudes who don't know him. He will come to judge the living and the dead. And he will judge the world in righteousness because it will be judged by the God-man, Jesus Christ. They are serious words, aren't they? And we need to take note of them. He was the Lord and King in his birth and he was the Lord and King in his life and he will be Lord and King forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Yes, he will. What does it mean for us, though, as we draw to a close? What does it mean for those of us who confess Christ? And there's one word. Apart from our faith in him, it is cruciformity. A cruciform lifestyle. You see, he, he redefined the nature of the kingdom. It wasn't to be like the world, the way of the world. To follow Jesus is to go the way of the cross. And in practice, this means that the cross must shape who we are as individuals and as a church. It must shape our spirituality, our vision, our values, our attitudes, our behavior, our goals, our ministry, along with what we fear and what we flee from. 
the way of the cross should mark us out. And that was the power of the early church, the way of the cross. And it is why the early church confounded the world and confounds historians even today. You can read of modern historians who ask the question, why and how did the early church succeed with such a, a ridiculous message? It is the wisdom of God. It is the wisdom of God. And so within that in mind, there's an old song that we used to sing years ago. And it has a line in it. You may remember it, may know it, make me a channel of your peace, which expresses something of this cruciform life. And there was a line I never understood, and it was this line, it is in dying that we're born to eternal life. And that is it, it is this cruciform life that we are called to live, and through which we experience more and more that eternal life to which we are called and we are now part of and which we will more fully enjoy. So as we draw to a close, and every one of those lines you could have preached a sermon on. So I've scratched the surface. I pray that you've been inspired. I pray that you've been challenged. If, if you don't know Jesus, I want to ask you this morning, why not? Stop listening to the other voices and look again at what Scripture has to say. See who he is. Let me clo close with the words of C.S. Lewis who said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something quite. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he didn't intend I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. Do you? Do you believe in him? Let's stand, shall we?